Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Small Biz Gone Viral, a happy place for otherwise downtrodden small business owners sitting in the COVID-19 waiting room, hoping for a vaccine for their business, though at this point, they'd probably settle for herd immunity. The goal here is to provide a realistic view at entrepreneurship by talking to small business owners about their plans heading into 2020, what the hell happened to those plans, and how they are going to adapt and overcome, or survive and thrive. I'm your host, Grant LeBeau, small business owner who's right there with you, currently just trying to survive. Thriving will come later. All right, time for our fun fact. Yay! After listening to my last couple of episodes, I realized that lately my fun facts haven't been so fun. And since the world isn't exactly providing a lot of fun material these days, we're going to go back in time. Today's fun fact is about our guest, co-founder of Public Habit and overall boss lady, Sydney Badger. Not only did Sid and I live in the same dorm freshman year of college, shout out to Keeney Quad, but she also baked me a cake for my birthday first semester of freshman year when I was homesick, and we've been friends ever since. All right, enough reminiscing, fun's over, time to get back to what's going on now in our segment, Facts and Figures. As always, for context both now and for when people theoretically listen to this in the future, trying to get a sense of what it was like running a business in a pandemic, here are some stats about the world we are living in now. We are over 200 days into the American COVID experience, so things aren't changing much week over week. We are still losing between 7 and 800 Americans every day to COVID, accounting for 14% of the world's 5,000 daily deaths, in spite of being only 4% of its population. 7.5 million people globally currently have COVID, about a third of which are in the U.S. Unemployment continues to drop overall, though with heavy volatility. Put simply, more people are getting hired than fired, furloughed, laid off, etc., but there are still pre-COVID record-setting numbers of people filing for unemployment each week, more than 800,000. Adding to that volatility, a ban on cruise ships was extended another month, Disney announced layoffs, and American Airlines and Delta both announced layoffs, coming immediately following the expiration of their six-month, $25 billion federal bailout package. The airlines industry continues to lobby for another six months of funding, but President Trump just announced there will be no emergency funding of any kind until after the election. Now, before we get to the interview, one quick thing. I grew up in the era of shows like Friends that always had an epilogue. So a few, sh a few shows back, I added a bonus segment of my own with three or four rapid-fire questions for my guest, like their least and most favorite parts about entrepreneurship. So stick around even past the credits for our bonus lightning round. Now, on to the interview. Today's guest is my good friend from college, Sydney Badger. Sydney studied Chinese at Brown, graduated, and unlike most of us, immediately put her major to use by studying, living, and working in China for over five years. She's actually currently supposed to be living in China with her husband, but, you know, COVID. After a decade in retail at Ralph Lauren and Amazon learning fashion merchandising, buying, and e-com, Sydney teamed up with a former coworker from Amazon to start a fashion business. 
that long winding journey to figure out how to build a more financially and environmentally sustainable fashion business eventually led to the creation of a unique business model, her company Public Habit, and its crazy Quixotean desire for a double bottom line. Sounds complicated, even without COVID. Anyway, she can explain it better than I can. Sid, thanks so much for being here. Thank you very much for having me. I'm really excited to have you here because I feel like uh, I'm going to learn so much about your industry. And specifically, I feel like your business model is just drastically different than everything I think of normally when I hear of a company producing in China. So first things first, though, tell me about your path personally before that led you to found Public Habit. Okay, well, Grant, you know me pretty well. We go uh, way back. I'm, I'm assuming that the uh, intro had a little bit about the fact that we went to school together. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, so I grew up in England. I was your only English friend at college. That was probably the most important thing that differentiated me when I got to Brown was that I had an accent and everyone was very excited about the English girl on campus. Um, but my parents are actually American, so it was a bit of a farce. I just grew up in London. Um, I studied Chinese at Brown, which is part of the reason I've come back full circle to being back in China, back running a business that's like largely dependent on China. Uh, studied abroad in Beijing my junior year, and then I moved back to China after I graduated. It was 09. Jobs were scarce. I think my recollection at the time was that a lot of my friends who had been who were going into banking and things were either losing their jobs, rethinking their path, and I had still had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, it seemed like been... it seemed like the job market couldn't be any worse, and yet, right. and yet here we are. But continue. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember TFA or Teach for America was like the hottest recruiter on campus. If you remember, yeah, I definitely do because it was like a stepping stone into, or like in yeah. like a holding pattern kind of way into a yeah. larger consulting or banking job if that's yep. what you wanted. Yep. It was going to be this mark of like you did something good for this right. country. You went and worked for tough cookie. Yep. You worked for Teach right. for America. You went and worked somewhere that was maybe less savory than what you were accustomed with your Ivy League education. Yeah, yeah, and you could handle it. And then you went on to Bain and McKinsey's. Right, <laughs> it's the perfect story. Uh, well, they rejected me, so I did not get my Teach for America job. They said I think the accent through them a little bit. Um, so I went to China kind of on a whim. I got this um, opportunity to help start a podcasting uh, website for Chinese language learners. It was at the time when language learning by a podcast was just kind of picking up speed. There was this thing called Chinese pod, which if you were a Chinese language learner was like kind of cool for learning Chinese. And I worked for this guy who wanted to start up a rival company to Chinese pod. So I became basically you, Grant, the host of this podcast, teaching uh, Chinese with a Chinese co-host to no one because we did not ever officially launch. Oh, you this you did become me, or I did become <laughs> you. <laughs> you did, yes, yeah, and I was like ten years ahead of you. So um, yeah, I win, I guess. Um, but that, I guess, I just kind of fell in love with China. It was kind of a love-hate relationship, if I'm honest, but. It was a cool time to be there. There was like so much development, so much going on, so much industry. 
um I mean just everything you'd like look around every corner and there'd be a new restaurant just popping up every single day so just the pace of development over there was always really exciting I then moved back to New York and I kind of stumbled into retail I joined Ralph Lauren um in the Asia Pacific division because I felt like I needed to work for a big name brand I felt like my Ivy League education was getting lost on my kind of <laughs> um dreamer side of myself that was kind of off exploring the world and I felt like I needed to get stuck into a career and that that was what I was supposed to do and Ralph Lauren ended up being a pretty pretty good spot to learn retail from the inside out so I didn't really have any idea what that industry looked like I didn't know what it meant to be a buyer or a merchandiser or a retail planner except what I'd seen in you know movies I don't even I can't even name a movie right now except for maybe like 13 going on 30 was she a buyer i don't know probably something like that exactly it was it was not in our kind of general dialogue about what what a buyer did but right. it turns out that it's a lot of left brain meets right brain it's a lot of creative curation of product mixed with data figuring out what people are going to want to buy and planning for consumers which was kind of a fun mix of skills which i was decently good at um I did that in the early 2010s. I got recruited over to Amazon in 2013 and I moved out West and I've been in Seattle for almost seven years, spent over five years at Amazon, lots of different roles over there. Um, but it was an amazing experience of kind of being a part of a company where you could literally wear any hat. I could be a marketer. I could be a product developer. I could be a supply chain manager. I could, start a new business yeah one of the things you were telling me was that basically you were assigned to grow a an amazon private label asset group is that right yes i was uh the brand manager for a little known brand called wickedly prime which was um jeff bezos's pet project of a food brand looking to take on trader joe's and this was circa 2000 ish 2015. Um, but I got to kind of build the brand from scratch within the walls of Amazon, which is absolutely amazing. Is, was that before or after they bought Whole Foods? Right, right, right before and as. It was the, um, yeah, we're right in the middle of it. <laughs> so essentially between your experience at Ralph Lauren and then at Amazon, you were primed essentially perfectly to go out and start your own fashion-based e-com business. When you put it like that, yes. But at the time, I had none of the confidence that I could possibly do. Does it but, feel, yeah. d do you feel uh, hyper confident now? No. Um, <laughs> no. But with each passing day, more and more so, yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. So, it's taken two years. Yeah, it's taken two years. Okay, good. <laughs> good. Yeah, you, you want to be confident going into those investor meetings, which we're definitely going to talk about more later. But first, Tell me more about what public habit is. Sure. Um, okay, so 2018, I leave Amazon with a uh, my now co-founder, Zahar, who is a serial entrepreneur. He's an amazing, amazing um, operator. Like that guy just makes stuff happen from nothing. And he had a lot of the skills that I didn't have on the operations side to kind of figure out how to start a small business. Um, we basically initially started out with the very basic concept, which was how do we sell high quality t-shirts on Amazon 
without people having to pay the ridiculous markup that they do from a traditional brand. So why are people paying for like a Vince t-shirt at $75 when honestly we know that you could still break even and even deliver a decent margin if you retailed at like 25 bucks. Like these margins on these retail products are completely outsized because of how messed up and broken the back end of the industry is. So that was the initial concept. We wanted to go kind of tackle the supply chain and figure out a better way to deliver quality product at a better price. And one of the things that I was very unaware of was just how much waste there is in the fashion industry. Yeah. So that was phase two. So phase two was, okay, we'll go develop and deliver some t-shirts. We're going to go develop a t-shirt line. We went to China. We started sourcing product directly. We started seeing the immense amount of waste building up at factories and warehouses of just unused, unused textiles, unused rolls of fabric that were ultimately never going to find a home. And we also stumbled on important data points like the fact that 30% of clothing made is never even sold. Wow. That there's a tremendous amount of overproduction in kind of early, the early side of the supply chain that is absolutely never makes it to the forefront of the conversation with the consumer. Why is it that essentially one in three garments made never gets worn? It's a very long, slow supply chain. So it takes about 12 to 18 months to commercialize a fashion product. And a lot of it is because there's a lot of inefficiencies between raw material planning and um, demand planning, and then just basically guessing wrong that far in advance what customers are going to want and having to produce a lot more than you need in order to hit pricing that will give you a margin that you need to support the business. So it's this long broken system that effectively comes back to the fact that it's super supply chain driven, supply driven versus being demand driven. So, you know, brands end up making a hell of a lot more of the yellow when really customers wanted the green or too many of the extra smalls when they should have made the mediums. And it's just a really inefficient system. That ends up with a lot. And the reason and the reason why you end up with so much waste is because from a business model standpoint in the existing industry is you would prefer to have enough product so that you never miss out on a sale. On a put exactly. on so you, you never want to run out of supply. So you order more than you need and then you just inflate the price to yeah. make that make sense. Retail 101 that I was taught was always stack them high and let them fly, never miss a sale. It was always about never missing a sale. And the implications and the impact on the uh, environment ultimately and what the customer is ultimately paying for because of a lot of these mistakes and inefficiencies, it's always just built into your, your budget <laughs> and never part of your consideration in terms of um, the long-term impact of what this industry has done to the planet. Wow. Yeah. So I invite listeners to go to your website only because, well, only because that's a great place to learn more about your amazing products and should they so choose actually buy something. But uh, you have this great graphic that I thought just really, ex like d does a really good job of explaining um, your, your unique kind of purchasing process, uh, and which is significantly longer than fr from 
relative to a normal purchase process. So it is the exact, it's funny that you came from Amazon because this is like the exact opposite of Amazon Prime. You, you have like Amazon opposite end of the spectrum Prime where you click purchase and how long does it take before your garment arrives? Yeah, 21 to 25 days. So I should have probably answered your real question, which is what's your business? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, why don't you go ahead and do that? (laughs) (laughs) Fabric Habit is an on-demand fashion platform. So we only make what we sell. Nothing, we don't own any inventory and our entire model is about flipping the supply chain around to be much more demand driven. So when you place an order, we aren't sitting on any units of inventory. We route all of our orders through our supply chain to our different manufacturers. They produce within seven to 10 days. We inspect in China and we ship directly from China to the end customer. And on average, that takes about 21 days. So it seems like you have uh, an inefficiency on one end and a hyper efficiency on the other end in that you aren't sitting on inventory. So you're not wasting upfront cash flow. You're not spending money 12 to 18 months ahead of time in, in down payments you're only spending once you actually have that purchase order in hand from a customer. But on the flip side of things, you have, I would assume, especially being a relatively new company, minimal economy of scale in your actual production because you are producing ones and twos or maybe fives and tens, but almost certainly not hundreds or thousands in the way that any of your prior employers would. Yes, you are right to on the efficiency side. I would say on the inefficiency side, um, there's actually a lot of, there's an argument that we would make that it is a lot more efficient to produce small batch minimum quantities on demand, like ones at a time. A, if you have the right partners. So for example, it's taken us, it took us a year to find the three partners that we ultimately started producing with of more than 200 that we vetted because they'd invested in automating their manufacturing capabilities to be able to scale on demand production. So it is no more expensive for them to produce one at a time. If I ask, I need to get this in small and I need the next unit to be extra large of the blue instead of the green. It is no more expensive for them to do that in that facility than for than a traditional kind of mass production line. That, That's a huge upgrade. That is from the traditional so system. surprising. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, they get fed data of all of the specs from their different customers, and they're able to rapidly move from um, from piece to piece depending on material availability. And so, as long as you're aware of material availability, it's actually very efficient for them to move from one one piece to another piece. So how does a organization like that exist in a world where you were saying that in the beginning, that m- the vast majority of your competitors in like the traditional garment production industry, they are placing large purchase orders in order to hit minimum quantities? It's niche still, for sure, on the manufacturing side. I would say that we're not cheap. I mean, you get what you pay for. So in a traditional mock-up of fashion, the labor and materials will probably be less than 10% of the final price to a customer. Yeah, it's crazy. So let's put some some dollars on that real quick. So that means that that if you're buying 
I don't know, a, a $200 oh. jacket that it's that the actual cost of goods and labor and everything out the door is $20. Yep. For, for many, many, many kind of mass brands that will be kind of the t- traditional um, contribution of labor and materials. Is that why when I go to Vietnam, I can get a North Face jacket for $20 instead of $200? Probably a couple of reasons for that, but partially that and partially it fell off the back of a truck somewhere. Um, but yes, it could, it, it is, you know, those, um, those labor and material costs are real and in our opinion should be the most significant portion of the price that a customer pays for a product. So for us, it's 50 to 60% of the ultimate price that a customer pays. So we are still offering great value on these premium products, but we are paying a markup versus if we went to produce 5,000 cashmere sweaters from a factory in other parts of China. So We've determined, though, that we can still offer better value, produce less, um, and give the factory a better price per garment than what a traditional mass manufacturer would get. So I think that we have a pretty good understanding of exactly what it is that you are offering. You started two years ago? Yeah, we. I left Amazon two years okay. ago, so I guess that's my marking point. But we launched the site. October of 2019, so almost a year ago. Oh my gosh, yes, but only four and a half, five months before COVID, which we will get to. True. Yes, because I'm sure that was a really fun situation to go, to go through, uh, leaving the or re- reflecting on the absolute certainty of a paycheck with Amazon, which I just saw a stat that Jeff Bezos's net wealth net worth has gone from like 105 billion i think to 180 190 billion just since covid yep war profiteers man it's intense yep that's fun mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. anyway uh so i feel like we've set the table relatively well so far the only thing i want to do if in to, to kind of wrap up this segment is to establish the baselines of what you were expecting what you were forecasting 2020 to look like before covid came along Sure. So we had we launched a very seasonal business, cashmere wool production. So things that peak between November and February and then really dip off. Um, so the intent was to be expanding our product assortment through the year into kind of more year round categories and materials like silk and organic cotton and a few materials that we were excited about. That would have probably, you know, we were forecasting aggressively about a quarter of a million dollars this year in revenue and we halted all new production all new expansion come mid-feb we we stopped early mostly because our supply chain was obviously affected earlier than most because it's all china and they were hit early by covid right Um, right yeah the the, the date that we usually use on this show as kind of the delineation moving into the 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 uh the delineation between pre-COVID and, and mid-COVID is March 1st, because that's when the first uh, COVID-related death was on U.S. soil. But obviously, COVID-19, 2019, it, it started in 2019, months mm. prior in China. Yeah. My my date is January 21st. Okay. The day, before, the day before they shut Wuhan. I think that's right. It's the beginning of Chinese New Year holiday when all the factories were typically shut down for a week to two weeks and then ultimately shut down for about four to six weeks. 
that was it for us. Wow. Okay. So really, you were three months in, maybe midway yeah. through your fourth month, when production stopped and interrupted your supply chain? Correct. So were those three... Ooh, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Okay. So originally, the plan, the forecast, looking down down the scope into 2020, you're thinking quarter million, you're expanding product line, and maybe looking to raise some money? Yep. Okay. But and, and, we were, exactly. And th at that time, it was just you and your founder? Correct. Or your co-founder. Okay, great. That I think that, that's, we have all the information we need <laughs> to, to retroactively look through rose-colored glasses into what a great year 2020 is going to be. <laughs> and on that note, it's time for our guest's unsponsor, which as always is an amazing company run by amazing people who are producing an amazing product and is a small business that deserves the support of our listenership. And of course, they don't know that you are giving them this little shout out. It's just a little nicety that we can do to make the world a slightly better place for small business owners. So Sid, who is today's show not brought to us by? Today's show is not brought to us by Juna, the app for prenatal and postnatal fitness and nutrition that has become a pretty important part of my life since I got pregnant in late January when everything, <laughs> everything happened at the same time. Um, yeah, Juna.moms. Sorry, it's a tough word for me with my accent, but J-U-N-A dot M-O-M-S is the website um, run by this wonderful woman called Sarah Fickler out of L.A. She started it, I think, when she was pregnant with her second kid, was looking for good nutrition and fitness advice that was really tailored for pregnant women because there's just a lot of misinformation out there. And she's got a wonderful app with like awesome resources across the training, content, um, nutrition. She's got an awesome podcast that I love to listen to. So I think for anyone along the fertility, prenatal, and postpartum, there's um, something for you in this space. And she also has an amazingly professional-looking Instagram as well, Juna.moms. I know. I think she's, uh, she's on to something. It's almost like adults who are trying something for the very first time that is perhaps the single most serious thing they'll ever do want a little bit of guidance <laughs> maybe maybe just a smidge i think until you're in it you don't realize how hard it is to come by this intel if i'm honest that was a real eye opener for me and i will do a plug for her podcast if you want there's a lot of women like me who i do think are obsessed with birth stories if you're into birth stories, her birth story and her podcast is like hilarious, informative, funny, touching, warm, wonderful, and like real. <laughs> okay, great. Well, I'm I'm gonna take a listen to it. I I, I will good candidly. I am actually reading a book right now called uh, Expect Expecting Better, which is. <gasps> Emily Oster. Emily Oster. Great book. Yeah. Brown alum, right? Uh, Brown, prof Brown professor right now. Professor. Yeah. And basically Love she's a, an econ professor who was frustrated with the lack of uh, statistically relevant studies that were made available to the masses. And so she just went out and did the, did the, the research <laughs> on her own, essentially. 
Yep, this episode is also sponsored by Emily Austin. Yeah, Emily, thanks so much for... <laughs> well, actually, I feel like I'm I'm sponsoring Emily because so many of my friends in in you know because of where we are in life like everyone is thinking about having kids and so i actually recently purchased i think six of her of the exact same copy of her book or six copies of that book expecting better and have been giving it away to other friends who tell me they're trying it's a great gift anyway that was a a a lot of talking about uh prenatal concepts. So let's go ahead and move on to mid-COVID, which, like I said, normally on the show is a March 1st start date, but for you was a January 21st start date. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So walk me through what the first real world implications were for or or tangible uh, actions that, that started to affect your business. The first was that I got kicked out of China and I couldn't get back in. So I had moved to China with my husband um, over a year ago. And then we had left for a week of vacation along with everyone else for Chinese New Year. And then we couldn't get back into the country come February 1st. Um, So we were stranded a little for the month of Feb and uh, slowly watching the sales start dipping particularly because the seasonality of our product was kind of wearing off. We knew we were kind of at that point where we needed to gear up into expansion and moving into new categories. Our supply chain was halted. We couldn't ship out any new orders at that point. Everything was on hold. Um, Then I get back to the States, which is where I have relocated to for the rest of 2020. Um, Back in Seattle, which is also where my co-founder is. And we spent a lot of March kind of watching our supply chain picked back up. Everything reopened a bit quicker than we expected back in China. But then everything started hitting here pretty badly. Right. I was just going to say, so you basically got like the worst of both worlds. You, well, yeah. you had the supply chain. Got a nice double whammy. Yeah, you had the supply chain that you got experience or you got to experience the, the dip and the uncertainty and or just the altogether halt of your supply chain well before anyone in the U.S. really thought of it as their problem. Yes. And then and you're then here. Saw... Yeah. <laughs> right. And then consumer confidence tanked and no one wants to buy anything because they're not going anywhere. So who needs clothes? Yes. I would imagine it is a very difficult time to have a clothing (laughs) startup. Fashion has been one of the hardest hit, I think, next to fitness of all the uh, retail kind of verticals. In-person fitness. Yes. 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 Sorry, I should say fitness studios. That's just like very real and close to my heart so yes in person studios i was actually forwarded a recommendation today a uh an owner of three yoga studios in dc yeah yeah a a tough tough story which i'm sure we will be bringing to our legion of tens of listeners any any week now I should have mentioned restaurants it was probably higher than the whole fitness thing but yeah yes Yes. Restaurants have definitely been hit hard. I was actually just talking with a friend about this yesterday as we were walking through the city of Del Mar, which now has a mask mandate in their little tiny San Diegan municipality. And my friend was telling me that 
they had, because people were being irresponsible, had uh, removed the ability of Del Mar restaurants to sell alcohol to go, which on the face of it, okay, great, people are, you're reducing inhibitions. I, I totally get that. My point in bringing this up is that there's always another side to the coin. And in this case, it is if you are down to 20, 30% of your pre-COVID revenues and you're able to sell something like alcohol that has an incredible A, shelf life and B, margin, that's something that could single-handedly keep you going. And so it's just another tough beat for restaurant owners. Yeah. But back to you. And your own plight as a small business owner, entrepreneur, starting your business that was going to take off this year. Mm -hmm. So we get to mid-March, consumer confidence takes takes a dive. We get to April. We have, oh, 30 million ish people file for unemployment in the first, what, five, six weeks there, just absolutely obliterating uh, weekly unemployment filing records just week after week. How was that uh, converting or how is that showing itself to expressing itself in terms of uh, its effects on your business? You know, we made a decision pretty early on that making new product was not what the world needed um, at that time. Uh, we did dabble with sourcing masks through our supply chain, became super challenging, um, both from like regulatory and just a black market nightmare of trying to figure out what was real, what was actually on a boat, what was where. Um, it was kind of a hot mess come March and April. And Did you ever get as far as to actually like place a purchase order for masks? Nope. We got as far as um, being able to basically getting donations from factories that we work with that they'd sent and we donated them locally in Seattle. So that was, we never placed a PO though at the end of the day. It became, it was actually kind of a wonderful moment of humanity of like, how are we playing, trying to play this game to, um, you know, to drive a profit on this necessity right now when people are so desperately in need. So we kind of did what we could with um, the donations and and then moved into the next phase. Well, before we move on to whatever that next phase is, I do want to say that you are a rare breed because I feel like there are so many businesses out there who, and maybe it was because they were more established and so they had more overhead, but I think that the the industry of mask production has probably, similar to alcohol to go has actually somehow been the savior of many businesses just just mm-hmm. barely enough to keep the lights on i know the mm-hmm. the business across the hall from me the exact that i mean that, that's that was the purchase order that that allowed them to rehire people literally one day after they had laid them off was in masks yeah. so Yep. Well, I would say that a lot of our supply chain and people who we know on the supply chain side have since still pivoted their primary product to masks and PPE in general, because so much of the demand for traditional textiles and fashion products is so low still that they've just had to get creative. So it's so disruptive that they've pivoted away from their main business being normal day-to-day garments. And moved mm-hmm. entirely I mean, to masks. Wow. 
Yeah. Still to this day, most production in China is running less than 50% capacity because of softness in, and that's, you know, I'm speaking to textile manufacturing, but that's because of how soft demand has been over here. Yeah. Well, if you aren't going outside and you aren't going to the types of situations that would normally require you to wear something other than pajamas, why would you buy that new thing? You're not going to get tired of wearing that old thing. Exactly. Exactly. It's probably the best thing that ever happened for sustainable fashion, if I'm honest. Yeah. And so I do have a question about how you said you had made the decision to stop producing the next season's uh, uh, fashions. When you say producing, is is that synonymous or interchangeable with designing? Because, okay, you're nodding yes. Because it's, yes. Because you're not actually producing anything ever except to spec, exactly. except, except after the purchase order. That's the whole right. model of the business. Okay. Right. It was about, it was the time when we would have accelerated into sourcing out of new countries. We were looking at Portugal, Nicaragua, Guatemala, um, just expanding the supply chain into different um, specialties. And every other country's supply chain was even more disrupted than China's. So it just wasn't the right time to think about supplier expansion at that time. And it was better to be doubling down with who we were already working with. So from a back-end standpoint, I'm interested to know, is the model or do you have it set up such that when a purchase order comes in, that purchase order based off of the type of garment that it is or whatever skew it is, gets forwarded immediately to whatever the the factory is and then it gets produced we and like I, I guess what I'm saying is like how how much effort is required on your part to actually see an order through or is it all automated? Pretty automated. We have to batch. The only thing that we're still doing manually is batching the orders weekly so that we aren't our factories aren't dealing with you know, five orders coming in different times of the day. It's just been a lot more efficient for us to batch them weekly. Um, but aside from that, we work with tools that enable us to basically dispatch the orders to the relevant factory once a week. And then everything else is automated with our 3PL that we work with in Shenzhen and China. And then everything is synced through Shopify, through 3PL, through to the end customer. So that's our pretty rudimentary system at this point it sounds that's funny that you say rudimentary but i look at your site and it looks as sophisticated as any other you know big giant uh fashion company and you would never know that that's a shopify site with just a, a few rudimentary your word not mine uh, you know, forwarding of a purchase order here and routing there. And then all of a sudden you have this made to spec top tier quality item delivered to you. That's out. It's a very analog industry though. I mean, the amount of Excel that's typically passed back and forth in the fashion industry is truly embarrassing. Hmm. So earlier you said that you were ready to move on to the next phase. And then I interrupted you with, I don't know, something forgettable. What was that next phase that you were that you did decide to move on to instead of moving instead of exploring all of those other uh, uh, relationships with country with production facilities outside of your current existing relationships? 
we decided to fundraise. So we, I know, it just seems like such an obvious answer, right? Like try and go and fundraise in one of the toughest economic, most uncertain economic environment in recent history. Um, you know, we actually felt really excited once we got over the initial hurdle of like, oh, this year isn't going to look exactly like we expected it to. We got excited because all of a sudden our model made so much sense and it needed to happen in the fashion industry we were watching Saks, forever 21 um j crew go bankrupt i mean you name it the number of fashion retailers that have gone bankrupt this year because the economics of traditional retail fashion retail just suck um was in everyone's face especially this overproduction was also in everyone's face the amount of retailers that were canceling orders with uh, manufacturing partners who were delaying payments to their manufacturing partners. They're so just crappy business practice that were showing how much power is in the brands or buyers hands versus in the manufacturers hands. It was just like despicable and customers were paying attention for the first time. And so we got really excited about this time as an opportunity to bring this on-demand model to the forefront as something that, you know, when it comes down to it, um, people can wait. People can wait if the impact is much better, much less harmful. Um, and you know that you're impacting humans along the way. I think the human side of the supply chain was finally kind of getting seen, at least for fashion consumers, because millions and millions of garment workers were losing work because of all of these big brands who were refusing to pay them. Um, so that was our kind of our impetus of saying we have, this is our window. This is our window to be part of this change and be part of the new conversation with consumers around slowing fashion down and doing things differently. Um, it has been definitely a consumer sentiment in the last six months as you've seen people just prioritize necessity, basics, just what do we need? What do I care about? What are my values? And that really translates well to what we were building, what we are building at Public Habit, which is a lot more about um, building things to last, made in the right way, delivered direct from the source, letting the manufacturer kind of be the shining star of the story. You purchase directly from that manufacturer, they make it for you, you receive it in three to four weeks. So we were, felt, went in all confident and excited about sharing this story with investors and <laughs> and it was um an interesting it has been an interesting process yeah it has not been fruitful yet has not been fruitful so the retail industry i feel like in general is a tough one to get into and this is this is you know, coming from someone who knows nothing about it and is basically just, uh, I'm just spitballing here with, I don't know, common sense. It seems like to the average person that it would be very difficult without knowledge, without insider knowledge of the industry and without connections to start a direct from the source uh, fashion brand. But, well, let's see, and, and, and to fundraise at a kind of pre not pre-revenue but like very early stage without a long track record or a or a celebrity identity to of from which to to build the brand around would be difficult but there's kind of a tech 
a tech angle to what you are proposing that makes it much more scalable and require a lot less initial investment in sourcing, which is exactly what drove those other companies into bankruptcy. Right, right. Is that is that part of what your angle is in get in these meetings with investors? Yeah, given that sadly the average investor really doesn't care about the waste minimization or the fact that we're B Corp, you know, unfortunately the sustainability story is still noise to the average <laughs> investor. I would say that being able to position a retail company that runs on zero inventory and effectively like a pos positive cash flow we receive customer cash before we pay suppliers is truly transformative in the world of fashion retail that is so backwards um so that's exciting when they've been funding growth uh for companies and d2c brands for the last 10 years that haven't really paid out in the, with the returns that they would have expected um but there's still a tremendous amount of fear around cost of acquisition, branding. Like, is this a fad? Cost of, cost of consumer acquisition. Consumer acquisition, mm -hmm. yeah. The marketing aspect, which is also what, to be perfectly honest, has scared us too. It's, it is, there's so much noise out there and it is very, very hard to build an audience organically and it's very slow to build an audience organically without to your point a celebrity or an angle or a thing um and th especially in this environment a lot of the feedback we were getting was oh if i just felt like you know i knew exactly um how how quickly fashion's going to recover from this kind of dip and i think there's a lot of value to what you guys are offering and it's obviously needed but like you know you kind of sound like you're an everlane or a kiana and maybe telling you some brands you've never heard of but um these are popular direct -to consumer fashion brands that popped up in the last five to ten years that have grown organically very well into nice profitable businesses that are probably all around a hundred million, 50 to a hundred million dollars. Um, but how are we any different? So that was a lot of the question that we were getting from investors. Well, maybe you just need to have investors who are also podcast hosts because I feel like I'm sold. And when I started, I've learned so much just in the 40 minutes that we've been talking here. I feel like I, I have, my personal opinion has evolved from, Oh, y you poor thing! You poor thing! Public habit. You started in the worst possible time ever. Your supply chain was, you know, basically shot in the foot in the beginning, or you know, the horse never left the gate. But at the same time, you have consumers who are now spending more more time on screens than ever. You have probably a, a pent up kind of demand because you have, you have pent up demand you have a reduction in competition because so many people are going out of business and there's been all of these disruptions where if you had the the huge outlays of cash then you were probably in a really tough spot you have something that's scalable and you have something that doesn't require a ton of cash up front i mean it, it's it seems like it's the exact type of if you're going to invest in fashion like you are the you are the solution 
to COVID. Like, although you were hammered in the beginning of it, it's actually creating quite the environment for maybe, or or more of the the atmosphere that is uh, conducive to a longer, a more patient consumer. Well, and the uncertainty of the world that we live in, like our our supply chain is able to dial up and dial down right. at the drop of a hat. We aren't we aren't sitting on our fall twenty merchandise already, or our spring summer merchandise, which is what so many of these retailers were stuck with, and that they've just had to trash. To be honest, so for us, we were looking at this being like, yeah, this hurts that demand is super soft right now, but at the same time, we aren't in trouble. We've got very very low overhead right now and we can scale this back to zero when we need to and we can dial it right back up tomorrow if we need to make ppe or whatever it is that the world demands um so yeah it's a powerful time to be in like a demand-driven supply chain <laughs> i just feel like someone would be an idiot not to invest in you said well well thank you so do, much do you, do you want me to go in the room because I'm, I'm happy to tell <laughs> yeah no i mean i think storytelling and selling is not something that comes supernaturally to me or my co-founder i definitely play more of the leadership role in that space but it's you know we're very annoyingly honest and frugal about how we talk about our strengths and our weaknesses and that's apparently not that helpful (laughs) they kind of just want you to sell them a dream um so we've learned a lot about the game that is fundraising and it's getting better, but I think it also, I think in the last two months has given us, um, you know, you lose, a lo- it's a very, very time consuming effort and you lose focus on your business if you aren't careful. And I think we had to take back control of the conversation come early July and be like, okay, if this doesn't even come through in the next six months to a year, what kind of business do we want to be building? Um, what do we want experience, the experience for our customers to be? This can't just all be about perfecting that pitch deck because the, you know, who knows exactly what they want. And we've got a long-term vision of what we're trying to build here. Right. And I guess this is a, as good a time as ever to segue into our, at this point, kind of a, abbreviated because it will never actually end, but our post-COVID segment. And essentially that has on this show morphed into the adjustments that you are making looking to make and are actively making moving forward and it sounds like currently you are trying to fundraise in a way that will set you up for success post covid but of course covid in the u.s at least could well be heavily impactful in our day-to-day lives for another uh, six months, 12 months, 24 months. If I were a betting man, I have no idea what I would put my money on, but it definitely wouldn't be anything less than eight months. You know, and that, and that seems optimistic. Yep. So with that in mind, what are you doing to, besides fundraise, to continue to prepare yourself for that post-COVID world or existing never-ending COVID world? Yeah, no, um, I think the biggest thing, we've had quite a few big-ish pivots that we're excited about now. I think at the beginning, it was a bit bit scary to think about this concept. But since customer acquisition has always been such a scary um, aspect of building the business, especially since we wanted a distribution channel that was primarily through our own website, 
controlled by us. Um, and because there's a lot of uncertainty in the general broader fashion landscape, um, we have, we've been really, really crystallizing what our truly unique value proposition is, which is around this on-demand supply chain mechanism that can enable anyone to develop product efficiently and cheaply. Like you as you, Grant LeBeau, is wearing a super cool t-shirt of Abbey Road <laughs> is actually of your family right now. Um, but you could, with our platform, you could potentially launch five pieces of a custom t-shirt that you would like to do cost effectively and to get that product out to people that you love. So our, our what we're testing this Q4 is how do we work with strategic influencers to basically do product collaborations, let them be the designer let us be the production platform. So we are thinking about ourselves more as kind of the engine behind the scenes to enable creatives to bring their product to life in the most cost-effective way possible. That's brilliant. I feel like all you need to do is just give me a couple minutes to run outside, sell my business, and then I'll come back and I'll, I'll invest. Excellent. Brilliant. Yeah. No, I mean we'll have you. I, I we'll have you on the on on any of it, any of it. I'll take it. <laughs> no, I mean I, I, one of the things that I feel like I have learned, or not speculated, but just kind of gleaned from my personal experiences in the entrepreneurial field is that if you can, if you can diversify and be able to benefit on the successes of other of many other people who are incentivized by your or are incentivized on their own and are essentially just using you uh, to supply their successes that and this is I'm just describing what b2b what is essentially what any sort of back-end platform is uh, and maybe it's but I, I guess if you if you essentially instead of you trying to build public habit is what you're saying you're saying hey you're an Instagram influencer and you have 165,000 followers who love your fashion sense. Yeah, go ahead and and throw out some Instagram posts with your designs and we'll design those for you. Then you don't actually have to do any of the things that you don't want to do, i.e. Yeah. build a brand on Instagram. You couldn't be more right. I mean, I think you're get, you're getting out what our ultimate goal is is what we think the power of a marketplace is to let each side of the equation do what they do best. So yes. that's always been super important to us. It's why we think that the manufacturer needs to play a much bigger role, much be, be that much closer to the end customer. We think the designer can be anyone. It can be you, it can be me, it can be a it can be Kim Kardashian, that would be nice, but let's say it's not. Let's say it's someone um, with 160,000 followers um, who has an idea and has an audience and we get to earn a revenue share of what we help bring to market for him, her, it. Yes. Wow. So with all of that in mind, you were very forthright in the beginning of this and you said that you were initially looking for 2020 to target revenue around 250K. Mm-hmm. How have you adjusted that forecast? We'll start there. How have you adjusted that forecast? Well, it's slightly different. Um, we have 
everything's, uh, you know, we had a strong January, so that was helpful, but everything is really shifted into our Q4 because we're still in the same materials, but we are looking at our goal is 100K. Wow. Okay. So uh, the goal is to only be down 60%. Yes. Okay. But at least you have low overheads and you have a vision moving forward. Do you think that there is a world where, looking back on it, the timing of COVID was a good thing in the long term for public habit? Absolutely. I do. Um, but I think more because of the industry wake up, maybe, than because of the um ability to give us the time and the space to reevaluate our strategy and our plans i think what we were looking to build a year ago is really not all that different from what we're looking to build now we're just thinking of smarter ways to bring it to market that would be more efficient um but i think the fundamentals of why we're doing what we're doing has been the same and i think the world's just kind of waking up to how necessary it is to change this industry yeah well Sid I think that's a a great place to kind of wrap things up Uh, I'm super hopeful and I I hope I I know you said today that you had a you had an investor meeting that did they give you the feedback yet yeah they gave us the feedback it was a it was it was solid feedback it was solid it was back to you know you're trying to do a lot of things at the same time you're like, yeah, that's why I need your money to make all the things. Yeah, happen. exactly. We we like to experiment, test and learn. That's what you learn at Amazon, by the way. Well, you can do that when you have a, a trillion dollar market cap. But True. that is neither here nor anywhere I am. So uh, <laughs> let's uh let's go ahead and give the give the listeners a, a way to support you. What is the best way to do that? Oh, yes. Please follow us uh, on Instagram, Public Habit. Check out our site, publichabit.com. You know, support the upcoming collaborations we have coming in September and October um, with these influencers. They're going to be pretty exciting. It's definitely stuff I would never have been able to design myself. So I'm really excited about what's coming. Um, And then you can find me at um, sydney at publichabit.com. I love it. Sid? Yeah. This this was this yeah. was so much fun. Thanks for thanks for coming on. I'm so glad you're doing this. Thank you for having me. Oh yeah, I I can't wait to have you on. And I, I say this to a lot of people. Can I co-host with you? Just you want to co-host with me? Absolutely. You, you it, it's I'll cathartic, right? Isn't this this is it's a cathartic experience talking about oh, yeah. your your pain points, but then also you hopefully come out of it with with some high hopes for the future, with yeah. some semblance of optimism. Yes. Yeah. Well, if there's nothing, if we're not optimistic as entrepreneurs, right? We've got to be at, at some points. Ah, yeah. Those moments seem fewer and far, fewer far between. between, yes. Yeah. No, we're ending on a good yeah. note. Sid, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Thank you to my guest, Sydney Badger. If you want to learn more about her company or you just want to buy some sustainably made classic and cozy clothes, go to publichabit.com. I'm also excited because Sydney just gave me the go-ahead to announce their new project, Collaborations with Independent Designers, basically giving a platform to launch while minimizing the startup costs and, of course, reducing waste. 
time for my unsponsor, aka a small business run by awesome people producing an awesome product who deserve your support. Today's show is not brought to you by Pure Cleaning Products. That's P-U-R. All natural and dye-free laundry detergent, multi-surface cleaner, all-in-one concentrate, whatever household cleaning products you need, Pure has you covered. This biz gives off big corporate vibes in the best possible way, but when you dig through their Insta, like I just did, you see it's actually a small biz run by good humans who are still hand-making everything. Check out pur-home.com and at purehomeclean on Instagram. And in ordering top-of-the-line, safe and effective cleaning products from Pure, you will also be supporting a black female-owned business. Check out Small Biz Gone Viral for all episodes and updates, and most importantly, to give me suggestions for unsponsors because, to be frank, I've run out of friends with businesses to give shoutouts to. So let me tell the world about yours and your friends for free. Thank you, Peggy Bunker and the Bunkmates, Worldometer, NPR, Robinhood Snacks, and Morning Brew Daily Emails, and my new favorite source of nerd graphs, Statista.com. Someday this will all be over, hopefully soon. Until then, stay socially distant, use common sense, and for the love of all that is holy, wear a mask. From an office in North Pacific Beach, this is Small Biz Gone Viral. And we're back with our quick bonus segment, The Lightning Round. Sid, what is your least favorite question about your business to receive at a party, and why? Lightning Round. Do you love... (laughs) (laughs) Um, Do you just love the flexibility of your schedule of working at home? I hear you. Uh, explain your feelings when someone you just met at a cocktail party asks, so what do you do? Fear, frustration, fatigue. It's just going to take so long to explain. I'm not succinct on this stuff. Um, yeah, those are the three primary emotions. Okay. Uh, how do you feel when someone you have known for a long time asks about the status or progress of your company? Fear. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm a little more patient with them, but yeah, still some of the similar emotions. Uh, what is your least favorite part about being an entrepreneur? Fear. (laughs) Um, I really miss the, I really miss the ice. I mean, I don't like the isolation of it. It's very isolating and I'm not someone that thrives in the, kind of being my own boss, working with myself for myself 24-7. And because we like to end this show on an up note, what is your favorite part about being an entrepreneur? Rapid fire. Sorry. The people. I mean, I know it's basic, but like my world and the conversations that I've had in the last two years have like opened up my world to much more interesting life. So that's awesome. (laughs) Uh, That is a great answer, and that's where we're going to end it. Thanks, Sid. Was I supposed to say thank you?